We're in the middle of this series called The Big Picture. And as I was thinking about that this week, I thought I would give you a visual representation. So this is my Bible here, 66 books, bunch of chapters. And uh, so far in four weeks of messages, we've covered this much. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's about six to 7% of the Bible. And so this is going to take us about 12 years to get through. Just kidding. Today, we're actually going to cover this much. So if you have lunch plans, I would encourage you to cancel those because we, just kidding. We're going we're gonna to take a real 60,000 foot view of a couple of things today. But let's just recap real quick. We started with Genesis 1 and 2 and, and the creation. And we were introduced to a God, a very relational God who created everything that is, created us, created humanity as the pinnacle of his creation in his image to rule and reign with him. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we see this very relational God from the very beginning. Why did he do this? I don't know. He could have saved himself a lot of pain and heartache by not including us, but he did. He included us. And that shows you the heart of God right there. And then we move over three chapters in, just Genesis 1, 2, and man, Genesis 3, and we go to fall. And that is where humanity just kind of looks at God. We have everything. We have perfection. We are living in utopia with our creator, and we're still unsatisfied. Can I get an amen? There it is right there. And we are so dissatisfied that we, 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 want to, we want more. We want to be like God. We want to be God. We want our own rule. We want our own reign. And so we rebel. And because of that, we find that creation is distorted and marred and broken. And boy, we don't have to have any lessons or examples of that, do we? We just can see that lived out in our lives every day. And then the week after that, Pastor Amy came and did a great job talking about this guy named Abram, who we also call Abraham, who God comes. And again, in this incredible moment, why God decided to do this? Why would God put his name, put his neck on the line to make a promise to a guy who's old and has no children, but to say, I'm going to give you descendants and those descendants are going to be as numerous as the sands on the beach and the stars in the sky. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Like I'm going to reveal myself to the world through you. And that really is important for us to understand because from the moment of creation, it has been God's desire to be known by his creation. He's always pursuing that idea. God's goodness is running after us. Why? Because God is chasing us and pursuing us because he loves us. And he makes this incredible covenant. It's not really dependent upon Abraham. God puts his own name on the line and he says, this is what I'm going to do. And then we moved next week, and Steve did a great job talking to us about Moses and the Israelites and Egyptians, and they get to Mount Sinai, and God gives them the law. And I'm a rebellious person by nature. You know, I've often said the way to tell me, to get me to do something is to say, Brent, you can't do it. And that is surefire way to get me to right there with it, you know? And so when I think about the law and all these rules that God has set down, I'm like, whew, this seems tricky. 
until we understand what Steve was talking about last week. Was he was telling us the reason God did this was to show the world again that he is God, to use this people to reveal to the world that it's not all these false gods that are requiring all these things or, or uh, you know, doing these sadistic, malicious things to you. There's a God who loves you, who has your best interest at heart, and that's the reason we have the law. And so that's, that's where we've been. Now, I'm, I'm just real curious. You guys can speak back to me at this point. Um, what have you seen? What have you learned? What have you been, what's been refreshed for you in, in just these last four weeks? Anything? What stuck out to you? To have tricked you now because usually we're way beyond the time you get to talk, but now I'm bringing it in. So it's too much of me talking. What have you seen? Mm. Yeah, his relentless pursuit of us. And we're going to see that again today. What else have you seen? Absolutely. Absolutely. What else? He's not a distant God, but he's more closer than Yeah. Not distant, but close, yes. All right, one more. He carries the burden. Oh, man. And that right there, that is so key. Because when you think about what God is trying to do, this big picture that he's trying to unfold for us, he's setting himself up against all the other false gods and false religions where they put the burden on humanity. You're at fault. You're the screw up. Now you fix it. And you find this in God. He just keeps taking it on himself time and time again. He's like, yep, you've, you've messed it up. That's okay. I've got this. We see that just continue to be played out over and over and over. And so today, we pick up the story where uh, the people, Moses gets the law, they spend, you know, they go to the edge of the promised land, God's like, go in and take it, and the people are like, no, 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 we can't do it, and they don't trust God, and God sends them wandering for 40 years, and uh, Moses is leading the people all this time, and then Moses has this moment of rebellion, and so he's unable to lead them forward, but they get back to the edge of the promised land. They've got to cross the Jordan River and go in, and so Moses dies, and, and he's buried, and Joshua kind of picks up the mantle to lead them forward. And so that Moses' death is the end of Deuteronomy. And then we turn the page to Joshua. And Joshua steps forward to lead the people and conquer the land. Um, just a real quick question. What do you guys know about Joshua? You guys know a ton about Joshua? Have you guys read that story? You can't fit the battle of Jericho. We know that because of the song. Then we move, you know, from Joshua to Judges. You guys know about the Judges? We're going to talk about that today. A little bit about Judges and Kings. This is kind of the big narrative portion. This is where you can make a lot of great Hollywood movies out of stuff happening here. You know, um, for us, because we're going to be with Joshua, Judges, and Kings, we don't know a ton about Kings here, do we? Uh, I am curious, any of you royal watchers in the crowd today? Anybody wake up at like, what, 4 a.m. to watch the funeral of the queen? I saw that hand, Paul Porter. I saw that. You know, um, 
it's the, we don't do, do royalty very much. We're fascinated by it in America, but aren't we glad we get to watch it from a distance? Because I'll be honest, none of it makes a lot of sense to me. I am fascinated. You know, this whole, you're special because of where you were born, great. Bunch of crazy rules around this family, too. It's really weird. I was looking this week, like, you know, they can't play Monopoly. Well, when the queen was alive, she wouldn't let them play Monopoly because it got too competitive and, like, they would fight, so she's banned Monopoly. Um, <laughs> She used to have this thing where she would weigh you before you ate Christmas dinner and after. And uh, just to see if you weighed more, it showed that you really enjoyed Christmas dinner. Um, that, that you had to, if you travel, you always have to travel with a black outfit of some kind just in case somebody dies. Go figure, you know. And, uh, you know, and then when you're eating, uh, you have to follow the monarch. Whatever they do, you do. So if they're eating, you eat. If they're done eating, even if you're not done, you're done. So you have to follow that. And let's not even get started with the crazy thing that Charles has with pens right now. I don't know what's going on there, but the man evidently has a pen issue. But we don't think about kings and kingdoms and queens very much unless something big happens in the UK. But as we pick up the story today, we find that this is where they're headed. They're headed to this idea of a king ruling over them. And even though it's not God's ideal plan for them, he allows it but then he uses it. He uses it to make another promise of the great king that is to come. So as we begin stepping back a little bit with Joshua, Joshua assumes the leadership position and they're getting ready to go into the land and, and God speaks to Joshua, this new leader, and he reaffirms some things for Joshua. Look at what it says. This is Joshua chapter one. God says, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give to them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Did you catch that? What God was saying right there. New leader stepping forward to kind of assume the leadership of this nation as they're going in to settle this land. And what does God tell Joshua right there? The two things that we've looked at in the past couple of weeks. He says to him, he says, I will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to them. What's God saying? I haven't forgotten the promise I've made to you. That promise still in effect. And then he says, obey all the law. And remember the laws I gave you? Those are still important too. Those haven't gone away. I'm still working through those things. Those same promises, the same law. Be careful. And God is reminding Joshua and the people of the importance of that covenant and the law that God has made. As I said, because what God is hoping to accomplish here, he's not just trying to be a killjoy and, and say, here's all these rules you have to follow. He's trying to say, listen, when you go into this land, you're going to see all kinds of craziness. There's going to be all kinds of religions. There are going to be all kinds of gods. And you are going to be tempted to be drawn into these things, but don't do it. Because as your God, what I'm doing, I've chosen you to be my representative. In fact, he calls them a kingdom of priests. You are to be my representatives in this world, in this place, to bring people to me. And God is reminding Joshua about this over and over again. It's an important part of the story. Because what God wants them to do, and this is kind of challenging for us, 
is God wants them to go in and drive out the people in the land. God wants them to just move them out of the land, but they don't. And we're going to find out why that's such an important thing in just a moment. So they go in, they fight at Jericho, they do battle, or actually before they go do battle, Joshua's, I think, feeling pretty good. And there's this interesting interaction between God and Joshua that I think there's a lesson in. Because in, uh, in, in this next passage, Joshua <laughs> encounters an angel of the Lord. Look at what happens here. It says, now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does the Lord have for his servant? This is such a fascinating interaction here because as Joshua has taken the mantle of leadership, as Joshua was ready to lead the people, he was God's ordained. He was God's man. And there's an int- the question that he asks, I think, is a question that sometimes we might ask. Well, whose side are you on? Are you on our side? Are you on their side? Well, we hear that question a lot in our culture, don't we? And the answer of this angel here is fascinating because the angel says what? I'm not on either side. I'm on God's side. I'm on God's side. And I wonder if sometimes, if we're not asking that wrong question even ourselves, and they may be even making claims about, well, God's on our side. Well, we need to check and see, are we or are we on God's side? Because what we find in this big narrative is that God is on God's side, and he's inviting us to be on his side. But yet it's not always that easy, is it? Because we find that our human condition is always trying to pull us away and commandeer God to say, no, 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 but God's with me, not with them. And we need to take a break and look and say, is that truly how it is? Is God on our side or are we trying to say that we're on his? That is a critical question for us. We read through Joshua. There's battles. It's a fascinating story. They drive out some of the people, but they don't drive out all the people. After about seven years of fighting and conquest, as they're about to settle the land, they split things up against, among the tribes, and they're starting to take up residence there. And at the end of the, the book of Joshua, we find this, again, a very interesting exchange. Joshua's getting older. He's going to retire from leading the battles and all this fun stuff. And he talks to them again about Abraham. He talks to him again about Moses. But he concludes the speech with these words. Look at this. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Very famous passage right there. I think it's on a picture in my house. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord the Lord. And you know what happens here? You read the ending of this book and you find out that the people are like, yes, we are with you. We are on God's side. We choose God. And I think this is kind of a bit of comedy here because Joshua looks at him and goes, no, you won't. No, you won't. You're going to fail. Just I'm telling you, you're going to fail. And even then the people are insistent. They're insistent because they even come back and they say, no, we will serve the Lord and obey him. I mean, they're, they're committed, right? They're there. They're ready. And yet, we turn one page. And in your Bible, you may not even turn a page. You may have the end of Joshua and the beginning of Judges. 
And with a rousing answer like the people think you give, you think, what could possibly go wrong? But when you move from Joshua to Judges, you immediately find out things are not right. Judges chapter 2, look at this. It says, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And after that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. So Joshua's generation had died. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at that and I'm like, wait, hold on. How is that even possible? I mean, these people saw God move and do some pretty incredible, amazing things. Parting of the Red Sea, they saw this cloud and fire and smoke come down on the mountain, and Moses comes down with the law. They had manna from heaven, they had quail, they had water from a rock. They'd, be, they'd marched around a city, and the walls collapsed just by them marching and yelling. And yet, a generation passes, and they knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. I just, that is dumbfounding to me. But it is a constant reminder of our human condition. And as much as I'd look to, like to shake my head and go, well, those backwoods, you know, they just weren't as sophisticated as us. They weren't as educated as us, not as smart as us. We can still look around in the world today and see that, no, there's constantly this slide away from God, away from morality and good people and holiness. And so as we jump into Judges, it's not good. It's not good at all. In fact, Tim Mackey with the Bible Project says that Judges is just a disturbing and violent book. That like, it's just, it's not great. It's a tragic tale of moral corruption that goes from bad to worse, where the people just become just like the ones they were supposed to not be like. They become just like the Canaanites. And what you find in Judges from the very beginning to the end is you find this incredible cycle, this cycle of the people reject God and they go and they do their own thing and they're sinning and all these things because they hadn't completely driven out the other nations. And then what would happen is these other nations would come in and they would fight them and they would oppress them and they would defeat them. And then the people would be like, oh God, what have we done? We're so sorry, God, please God help us. And they cry out to God and they repent and God sends a judge. And uh, judge is not what we're thinking. It's not Judge Judy or somebody on the Supreme Court. They're not wearing a black robe. This is like a leader in the regional tribes. This would be like a chieftain kind of person. That's who this is. But God would raise up this judge who would call them back and say, all right, people, you're sinning and, and it's time to repent. And the people would say, yes, and we repent. And so then everything would be fine for a while. And then the cycle would just start over. And it just is this unending cycle of what you see on the screen there. And we find these stories and they start out okay because you have judges like Deborah, who's a woman, scandalous, I know, you know, um, yeah, she was a good judge and don't feed me this line about, well, God had to use her because no man would stand up. That's not true. She was used because of who she was and she didn't need a man to represent her. But anyway, you know, <laughs> sorry. Um, I did say it. You have Gideon. He's kind of in the middle, you know, and he starts off okay. And in the end of his judgeship, he like is building golden calves and golden idols and stuff. And it's like, how are God's representatives doing this? And then we end the book with like Samson. You guys heard of Samson before? You know, strong dude, long hair, problem with women. 
just couldn't get over it and ends up getting his hair cut, losing his, losing his strength, taken prisoner, eyes gouged out. And at the very end of his life, he's, you know, put between the pillars. He knocks down the thing and he kills a bunch of people. And, you know, you look and you go, oh, well, that's good, right? No. I mean, that was never God's plan. And you see just these things happening over and over. And Judges is such a depressing book. It's so depressing. I mean, these are people repeatedly turn their backs on God. And, that, and the problem is they didn't do what God wanting them, wanted them to do. He's wanting them to be this example to the other nations so that they could see and know and experience this amazing God who created them and experience his love. But it didn't happen. They just continued to be sucked into that culture, the cultures around them. And so even including child sacrifice, I mean, if you can imagine that, that was part of what they were sucked into. You know, the Israelites, as I said earlier, they were called to be a holy people, people belonging to God, a kingdom of priests, where God would reveal himself to the world. And time and time again, all we see is that they continually just become like the people around them. They adopt their culture. They adopt their religious practices. And honestly, you just couldn't even tell the two apart. They were just like the rest. And another tragic part of this story is that when Israel forgets its God... They believe this, might makes right. That's a quote from Tim Mackey from Bible Project as well. When they forget who they are, when they forget their God, they believe that might makes right. I wonder if there's something for us to take away from that today. And then let me just depress you completely. Look at how Judges ends. Judges, this is the last verse in Judges right here. And it says, and in those days there was no king in Israel, and all the people did what was right in their own eyes. Man, who feels good now? Woo! Now, if I'm God, I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm done with you people. You people are a complete, utter failure. You're a disappointment. I'm moving on. And yet, that's not what we find. And you think in this moment it couldn't get any worse. I'm just going to prepare you. It does. It continues to spiral downward. And what we see, though, is that the God of Abraham, who made that covenant, the God of Moses, who gave him the law, he's not done with them yet. He doesn't write them off. He is still committed to saving his people and revealing himself through this group of people, through them. It's amazing. So we get done with Judges. We move to Samuel, the books of First and Second Samuel, which is actually one scroll back then. We've divided it in two. We have First and Second Kings. Once again, one book and not two. We have First and Second Chronicles. All these kind of outline the history of this nation at this point. But it begins where the people decide they want a king. They want a king. Now, I don't know why. Could you imagine that happening in our culture today? Americans getting together and be like, you know what? We want George back. Let's go. <laughs> Can't see it happening, but the people decide they want a king. Look at this right here, 1 Samuel 8. It says, they, the people, said to him, Samuel, who's the prophet of God, he says, you are old, Samuel, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. That's always a good statement. We want it because they got it. There you go. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, man, listen to this. Listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, 
but they have rejected me as their king. Oh man, if pull out the Kleenex right here. I mean, could you, this is horrible. God is acknowledging that their whole problem, Samuel, you're doing what I need you to do. Their problem is not with you. They are rejecting me. Time and time and time again, God, the one who created them, made the covenant with them, rescued them from slavery, gave them the law, brought them into the promised land, and they've continued to reject. Why? Because we want to look like them. We want to be just like those people. They have a king. And, you know, that's worked out so well for them in the past every time they've kind of sought that. And God, in his love and grace, gives it to them. Now, here's an interesting thought. Why? Why does God give it to them? Because the way I read this, you know, and there's this, you know, we always like to talk about the sovereignty of God. What does the sovereignty of God mean? And there's one camp that's like, it means God ordains everything almost like we're puppets on a string. But as I read Samuel, I get the idea that this is not God's perfect way for this to come about. And yet, for some reason, God allows it. And not only allows it, he uses it. And we'll find out more how he uses it in just a moment. But why is God so willing to accommodate us? I don't know. I wish I had that answer. But it seems like he is. He has this plan. He has this idea. And even if we want to take detours at times, he's like, okay, which scares me a little bit because it also shows us that God will sometimes give us what we want or what we're asking for, even if we don't need it. But we see this all begins with basically begins with three kings and you may know them. One's named Saul. Saul starts off. Okay. He's a very proud man, very proud man. In fact, he starts doing things he shouldn't do. And he finds out that he, <laughs> some of the things he's done is he gets rejected by God. And you begin to even see some cracks in the sacrificial system here because Saul, not waiting on Samuel to make a sacrifice to God, it wasn't for him to do, it was for Samuel, but Saul couldn't wait. And you find out that this is the moment where God rejects Saul as king. And Samuel tells Saul this, he says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Who, to obey is better than sacrifice. And that is like, wait, what? I thought sacrifice. I thought religious duty. And God's like, no, 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 no. There's something better. There's something greater than even religious duty. And God rejects Saul and he chooses someone else even while he's alive. And that's David. And David's the runt of the litter. He's out, you know, watching sheep. He's not the the burly, tough guy. And God chooses him anyway. And uh, he is a humble guy from humble beginnings. And God blesses him. And you have the cool stories of David and Goliath and all that. Um, And David is a very successful king. He continues to conquer the land and the battles. He's successful and he consolidates the 12 tribes together and even conquers Jerusalem where he sets up his capital city um, there. But we know also if you read about David, he's not without his faults, is he? He, (laughs) the whole Bathsheba affair and the killing of her husband, you know, but we do see a man that's willing to repent and move on. Uh, But David decides he wants to build a temple for God. He's got this huge palace himself, and he's living in luxury. He says, God, I want to build you a place. God, you've got the tabernacle, which came from Mount Sinai and been traveling around. And, uh, but God tells him, he says, 
you can't. You can't build me a temple, David. And we're going to address this in a bit why. But as king, David finds out he's got a son that tries to overthrow him, which is terrible, and fails. And then David's life ends kind of sad. It's not the success story you want to see. He passes the kingdom to Solomon, who's one of the wisest men to ever live. But even then, his life is just one steady descent into <laughs> away from God. You know, he, he starts off with wisdom, which is great, but then he begins to consolidate power. He marries all these women from other nations, and he brings their religions in. And uh, one of the things I read this week says that by the end of Solomon's period of, of reigning, that he was just like Pharaoh with slaves and the way he ruled and everything. It's just a tragedy. After Solomon, the kingdom is split into two. There's two different factions. There's north and south. The north is called Israel. The south is called Judah. And what's so fascinating about this time is that each of these regions have about 20 kings during this period where they're divided. And the north, the Israel side, all 20 evil. In fact, as you read about these evil kings, you find this over and over. It would say this, he followed the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That is said about every northern king. There wasn't one good one. And finally, God removed his protective hand from the people, and God allowed the nation of Assyria to come in and just wipe them out, scattered them. They were no more, carried them off into exile. Nation, the southern, Judah, uh, southern kingdom of Judah was a little better, but not much. They had about 20 kings. Eight of them turned out to be okay. But the eight out of 20 is not a great score on the test, is it, Lance? <laughs> no, still failing. But because of the evil kings and the rebellion, they still turned away from God. God, again, removes his protective hand, and the Babylonians come in, carry him off, and next week, we'll talk about this. We're going to talk about the period of exile and the prophets, how God tried to prevent these things from happening, and then how God speaks a message of hope to them. But before we get there, I want to show you an important exchange between David and Samuel, which is speaking a message from God. I said, David wanted to build a, king, a temple for God. God wouldn't let him. He was the warrior king. And, but there's an interesting exchange because God stops him and God says to Samuel, tell David this. He says, now tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Catch what happens here. David says, I want to build you a house. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. Your name will last forever. You know what's happening right here? This is another promise of God where God is saying, I'm seeding the Messiah that is to come. There's a promised one. It's going to come through the house and the line of David, the promised one. To, and he's setting the stage for the climax of the story that we're going to get to in a couple of weeks, and that is Jesus. And this promise to David goes beyond what he's doing in Israel. It continues to reveal God's heart 
not just to pick one or two favorites, but to reveal himself to the entire world. As I read Judges and Kings and all that, I look at it and I go, why is this in the Bible? It's so stinking depressing, devastating events. But then you stop and you begin to see what does it reveal about God? What do you begin to see? I will tell you that if you want to dig in, you guys should head over to thebibleproject.com. Great resources, great videos, talking more about this period. They're really good. But as I conclude today, I just want to show you a few things through this, what we see here. And the first thing is just simply this. <laughs> a few important things about God and humanity. The first is this, people suck. <laughs> people suck. They're not great. Even when God says, stick with me and I'll take care of you, we constantly flip God off and say to him, no thanks. Left to our own, and as much as we'd like to think we can legislate our way out of depravity or educate our way out of sin, we see it as bigger than us. Don't believe me? Go watch the Ken Burns documentary on PBS called The U.S. and the Holocaust. You will see depravity right before your eyes. It's just a reminder that we need something more. And even through the judges and kings, we see humanity constantly turning our back on God and chasing the fleeting pleasures of the world and accepting the world. We find that God doesn't give up on us. God never gives up on humanity. This God who created us in his image continues to break forth into our world to pursue us because of his love for us. And God's purpose is to continue to bring heaven to earth, to break forth into our world. He was wanting to use the Israelites to do it. Now he's wanting to use us to do it. And the question is, is are we like them? Are we so much like the world you can't see daylight between us? Or is he actually seeing heaven breaking forth into this world through you and your life? Another thing I think we see is we see the importance of passing on our faith to the next generation. I mean, these people, just one generation, they did not know God nor what he had done. Man, this is so important. But an important thing not to miss is, as I said earlier, sometimes God makes accommodation. Sometimes God makes accommodation for us and will work with us even when we're asking for things not best for us. God will meet us where we are and continue to work with us through that. And we see a caution here for us is that the way God redeems sometimes is not how we would choose to redeem. The way we act is not how God necessarily would act. God isn't, um, sometimes how we represent God isn't how God wants to be represented by us. And I think many of us today would be better off to ask the question, are we on God's side or are we trying to say he's on ours? And then we see that probably the most important thing here is in 2 Samuel 7, that last part we read, is that nothing is ever going to thwart the ultimate plan of God. As God is moving towards things, this is his big picture. That's the story he's writing. He's inviting us to be a part of it. And nothing, no matter how bad it may get, is outside of his control. He will see this through to the end. And we have to admit, there may be moments that make us question how we understand who God is, the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God. But ultimately, what we need to see is the love of God that never gives up, never runs out, never moves beyond, never is outside us. In fact, worship team, go ahead and come because what I want you to know is that even through the worst of judges and kings and all these things, nothing stopped God's pursuit and love for his people. 
and all our worst or best efforts can't stop Jesus, couldn't stop Jesus from coming the first time and won't stop him from coming again. And God's love for us is just overwhelming. And regardless of where you are, I want you to see today that yes, humanity can be terrible, that the world can be screwed up and messed up and seem out of control, but God's big picture is his love for you and his invitation to be a part of his story. These are great stories to read, great bedtime stories, but if we miss who God is and what he's doing, we miss it all. It's God's incredible love for you that never once has ever stopped chasing after you. Even when you say, screw you, God, I'm not interested in you, God has never stopped coming after you, not once, not now, not ever. And as we read depressing stories in Judges and Kings, we just see a God who continues to just say, come back. And next week, we're going to go into a, not maybe as depressing, but we're going to see it, that God is allowing his people to go to exile. And even there, he continues to send people and say, come back, come back, come back, come back. I'm not done with you yet. Don't look at where you are. Look at the hope that still exists. And so I don't know where you are today. I don't know what you may be facing down. I don't know what you're experiencing, but I want you to see and know and experience the incredible love of a father, a creator God, who says, I still haven't given up on you, and I won't.